this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by Prescore. What on earth is a Prescore? Pre stands for Personal Readiness to Exit Your Company, and here we're looking to evaluate how personally ready you are to leave your company. You know, when you go to sell a business to have a successful exit and look back on it without regret, you need two things. Number one, a company that is attractive to an acquirer, to a company that's built to sell. And number two, you personally need to be ready to exit that business. We found that there are four drivers of a happy and lucrative exit, four ways you can personally ready yourself to exit your business. And by completing your pre-score, you are going to see how you're performing against those four major drivers of a happy and lucrative exit. Just go to prescore.com. Alex McClafferty is my next guest. He sold WP Curve to GoDaddy. Lots of good stuff in this. I loved how Alex used his grandma as a way to educate his team about how to deal with customer support tickets. Listen to the way he describes outside in versus inside out thinking. Many of us as entrepreneurs, unfortunately, think inside out. But to maximize the value of your company, you're going to want to think outside. And I'll let Alex describe that. He also does a great job talking about attach rate, and that will be important to the value of your company, especially if you're selling to a strategic buyer. There are two really surprising reasons that Alex talks about why big companies buy little ones. He'll talk about not falling victim to the fishing trick. The biggest mistake he thinks owners make in dealing with corporate development executives and why non-linear scale matters to the value of your business. Here to tell you why is Alex McClafferty. Alex McClafferty, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. WP Curve. Tell me what you guys did. We had a 24-7 WordPress support service that was on subscription. So customers who had WordPress sites, which are anyone that has a website and has used WordPress knows that it's problematic and hard to use. Um, they would break something or something would break on their site. They would email us and then we would fix the problem for them in usually six to eight hours. So we did that on a recurring basis and it became a sticky and interesting business problem to solve. Fantastic. And so you know, if I had a WordPress site, I, I'm putting sneakers online, I'm selling, you know, 2002 Air Jordans or whatever. <laughs> I can't figure out how to like get my merchant processing tool to plug into my WordPress site. You guys would figure it, figure it out for me. Yeah, that's right. And the other things that would often pop up, you know, theme and plugin conflicts or yeah. folks that were afraid of making wholesale changes, you know, the old, um, push the big red button and my website's going to explode kind of thing. There's a bit of that, that fear when you're running on WordPress. So we would help to allay that fear and give people at some level, like an insurance policy around your WordPress site. Um, and people seem to get value from it. 
Yeah, because at the early days of WordPress, it was the kind of Wild West, right? Like it was this sort of open source. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't, I don't know much about it, but I, I, I seem to recall it was sort of this open source platform that anybody could use for free. Wasn't that the sort of early genesis of WordPress? Yeah, and it still is open source. And what has happened with that, the, the market's abs- like absolutely matured and there's a bunch of different themes and plugins and things that you can buy and spend a bunch of money on and you can go and get something that's really nicely designed. But it's also super scalable. And so if you're running like a, a serious website, WordPress, I think today powers something like 30% of the internet. Um, when we started WP Curve, it was somewhere around like 18 or 20%. So... Wow. The built-in kind of growth of that market has been astronomical. Like you'd, you'd have to really mess something up, I think, to, to do a business like ours and not get some growth out of a, an upswing in the market like that. The kind of you know, rising tide lifts all boats sort of idea. So you, you charge customers, you said 60 bucks a month ballpark? Yeah, anywhere from 60 to 200 bucks a month and they would get ongoing support. And the, the kind of no-brainer, no-brainer positioning on that was that um, you'd get unlimited website support. So you could send in as many emails as you wanted and we would you know, fix the problems that you had on your site. But there was also a natural throttle built in, which is typically your site only breaks like once or twice a month. So you probably use this maybe three or four times a month. And was there a reason you chose email as the primary way that you could communicate with WP Curve? Yeah, I have background in call center. So I know what a call center environment is like. And when you're dealing with people that are upset with their website, there's some frustrate, like there's inherent frustration. And so having people on the other end of the phone, trying to navigate through the frustration of the problem that they're dealing with and also not be able to get very explicit requirements on what needs to be fixed, I felt was going to be a, a blocker for us to do efficient work. So we just had to get better at asking the right questions of customers to figure out like, okay, what does your website look like and what would you like it to look like? That's basically what we're trying to get out. But when you know, you're know you pre-launch, you're running a bunch of paid campaigns to a website and it just goes down, you're pretty upset. And then it becomes a, um, I'd say a bit of a fire drill and that you know frustration and energy tends to go somewhere and in a call center kind of environment, it would probably land on the person answering the phone. And so what, what, what did you do in those 911 situations where they needed it up and running right away? I mean, was there an escalated phone option or, a, you know, a, you know, a, a, what do you call it? Like a text to chat or a chat function in, in, yeah. in the software? Yeah. So we had a couple of things. Um, we had some filters running that would scan for anything that said urgent or site down, and that would automatically go to the top of the priority list. So that was, you know, that picked up probably 80%. Um, then there was also live chat. So if someone was a customer and something broke and it was urgent, we always, always had someone kind of like scanning and keeping an eye out on the, uh, on the inbound stuff. But then on top of that, like resourcing was super important. So there always needed to be people on deck to be able to fix these problems. And how did you find those people? Like it was, it a follow the sun strategy where you had people sort of 24 hours in different countries or how, how did that work? Yeah, we had, we had a good kind of geographical distribution of people. Like early days, I think we started primarily in the Philippines because we knew we could get great talent and we could get great talent for a good price. But um, I think one of the motivators for kind of expanding and growing the business outside of just the Philippines is, 
you know, some of the geographical risk, which you don't really think about in the early days. So for example, if the Philippines had a monsoon rip through, you know, the infrastructure gets taken out, people are without power for a week or two, and you've got hundreds or thousands of clients that you're trying to support, um, then your business is going to be like pretty well backed up. And so we started to look at different geographies, which included, we had team members in Africa, Costa Rica, Eastern Europe, um, a couple folks in the US. So and were these was, contractors, Alex, or did you, were they full-time employees of WP Curve? Yeah, they were contractors and we had to be very, very careful about how we had them do work, what the terms of the agreement were, how they Alex, actually what, like- What kind of stuff did you lock down? There's, a, there's an IRS, uh, IRS checklist and I think it's like 19 or 20 points that define whether your um, team member is like an employer or a contractor. So you can just like tell someone they're a 1099 and you can hope that that's enough. But if someone- 1099 comes, for those outside of America being the, the kind of definition of a contractor as mm-hmm. opposed to a full-time employee. Yeah. And so there is a checklist that you can go through that stipulates, you know, this is how the work is performed. This is how they are paid. This is what their conditions are. And so I use that as a guideline and a checklist to break down how it was that we worked with these team members and made sure that all of the paperwork that supported that wasn't, you know, it wasn't just like, we're going to put you in as a contractor because it saves us money, but it was also, we had people that were working on other projects or other companies, or we might've had some part-time people. And so the flexibility worked worked well both ways. And, and the downside of contractors, of course, is, is part of that checklist that you're describing is exactly that. They've got to you know, have other clients and they've got to have flexibility over their time. So what did you put in place in the contract to ensure that they, they did indeed honor the WP Curve client and, and did their best efforts for them? Like, Were there two or three things you, you had to see in that contract to make sure that your, your customers were being taken care of? Yeah, I think that was more uh, kind of like at a cultural or an expectations level. So that was driving things through, you know, the company values, which is if you engage to perform services for our company, um, this is what we expect of you. And so this is how we do what we do. And it was very, I think it was very human. So one of the things that I came up with was that if you're going to be working with someone on their WordPress site, it's good to imagine that you're talking to your grandma at the other end of the email. Um, just imagine that your grandma has no idea what she's doing with WordPress and you need to step-by-step walk through and explain what it is that she needs to do. And just that simple framing, like if you like land a few of those kind of things with the folks that are working with you, it sets a nice tone. And um, yeah, there were some like unconventional ways of making sure that people did what they needed to do at work through culture and, you know, driving driving those expectations rather than hard and fast. Like, you know, this is, you are, you are the, the robot on the, uh, on the production line kind of deal. Cause no one really wants to work for a company like that. I love the grandma analogy. What else did you guys do to make it clear what customer experience you were trying to create? Um, if you go back to the old days of Toyota and Kaizen and how they had folks on the production line that would fix their own production line, the folks who were doing the work were also expected to make suggestions and implement fixes for things that were broken. So it wasn't good enough to just say, oh, this isn't working or we're seeing this error pop up again and again, or this business process that we're using is incomplete. The expectation was that you needed to 
contribute to that and fix that because otherwise you were just kind of making the problem worse. And again, with that kind of level of, I would say ownership or responsibility over the domain of the work that the, the contributor was doing, it gave, I think it gave everyone a real sense of identity, like a real sense of purpose and understanding like we are, like we're responsible for the work that we do and we're here to make this experience better. And that took a lot of pressure off me, frankly, because it wasn't just me trying to figure out how to improve the service, but it was, you know, 30 odd people that were working every day at the front line saying, oh, this is broken. That's broken. Here's what we can do to fix it. How big did you get this company before you wanted to sell it? Um, as far as team members, we had, I think at our peak, we had something like 30, 35 or 36 folks. Um, and that was between myself, a co-founder. We had a few people helping with marketing, a couple team leaders, and then the rest of the folks were operational. Um, but the, the genesis of the sales story is an interesting one because when we talk about this, I'm going to have an arrow that's like landed on the wall and then I've painted a target around it. So it wasn't as strategic as, you know, often <laughs> you often hear these magical stories of like, we were actually built to sell, like we were built to survive. And then a sale kind of came knocking on our door and I had to figure out how to do that. Tell me the story. About 18 months into the business, we started to hit some good scale. I'd scaled myself out of the business. I had some team leaders in place to manage the operational side of the business. And then my co-founder, Dan, he had, he'd started like, he's a serial entrepreneur type of guy, always got something new going on. And he'd started a, um, a new business on the side, which was like a brewery. So he does like beer brewing. And we we're trying to figure out like what to do next, because like neither of us were like, we'd hit, you know, hit momentum, hit some runway and we we're feeling pretty good about where we were. And it was going to be like either we sell this thing on the open market or one of us buys the other out or we look for a strategic acquirer. And so when I was looking at those options, I was like, okay, as far as like maximizing the sale value of what we've got, I think a strategic is going to be the best bet, but I don't know how to sell to a strategic. I don't even like, wouldn't even know who one would be to buy us. And this was probably, yeah, this is January of 2016. So I wrote on an index card and I put it in front of my, um, next to my monitor and I wanted a, uh, a sale, an all cash sale to a third party. That, that was what I was wanting for WP curve by the end of the year. So I wrote that out and I stuck that in front of my monitor and that was my sole focus for the company for the year. And then How I just, did you want for it? I wanted, I wanted enough where I could, <laughs> I think, have breathing room. And for different people, that's a different amount of money. For me at the time I was living in San Francisco and I think to rent a shoebox there is like two and a half grand a month. And so cost of living there, I think is probably like relatively speaking, like you've got to be making at least a hundred, 120 K to get by. And that's not an extravagant lifestyle. And then it goes up from there. Um, and my goal was to get an exit where, you know, if I needed to take some time off or reinvest into another company, I would have that freedom to do so. And the other thing so I'll you, add, I'll just yeah, say one more thing. There is a bit of a, there is a bit of a sunk cost when you put, you know, a few years of your life into a business like this. Cause it's not just like three years of eight hours a day trying to figure out how to grow it and build it. It's three years of probably like 12 to 14 hours a day. And then, okay, I've built this thing. What do I do with it now? And are you pulling out money along the way, Alex? Like, are you paying yourself a fair market wage or are you pouring everything back into the company? 
for the first, I think for the first six months, I didn't pull a wage. And then over time, like my wage kind of graduated in line with the business growth. And by, yeah, I think around the, the 12th to 15th month, I was pulling a, like a livable salary from the company. And the benefit to my co-founder who was based in Australia is that we were being paid in US dollars and he was getting paid in US dollars. And the um, exchange rate at the time was like doing him a lot of favors. So he was, he was really happy with how, like how things were going on his end. Um, but yeah, the, the, the sale process was a fun one. So everything kicked off in January, 2016. Got it. So you got the index card and you're like, uh, you know, I want an all cash third party offer. I'm assuming you had a number. I mean, you don't have to tell us, but on the index card, did you have a, an actual number that you wanted to sell for? I, I didn't, but I knew like, I knew a multiple that I would be comfortable with. Um, what was the multiple you were looking for? If I give you the multiple, that kind of gives away the, the purchase price. So I, have to, I see. So it was a multiple of revenue or multiple yes. of profit, uh, multiple of revenue. Okay. Yeah. And I had to back into that too, because when I started this process of figuring out like, what does a sale actually look like? Of course, my first place, like my first stop on this adventure is to go to a business broker and I've like, I've learned quite a bit about the business broking business and my perspective on, on it is really that it's like a, like it's, it's governed by transaction, right? So it's like, see how quickly we can transact a business, clear the decks, bring another one in to, you know, sell because it's a percentage of sale. And if you can get throughput and if you get speed and pace as a business broker, then you've just got money coming in the door. But for an, for a founder, you want to maximize the deal value and that can take a lot of time. So I went out and got a valuation from a business broker. And I think that was somewhere in the realm of like two to three times SDE. Um, SDE stands for sales discretionary earnings, which is close to, but not exactly pre-tax profit. So yeah. they were saying kind of two to three times SDE. Yeah. And I was, I was looking at it and I was like, mm, doesn't quite pass the sniff test. Like given the amount of like time and effort and energy that we've both poured into this business, I think we can do a little bit better. I don't think we're going to get like necessarily like a six to eight times annual revenue multiple for what we've built, but we've got something that scales. We've got a good team in place. We've got systems and processes that scale. And so I'm going to keep kind of kicking this can down the road and knocking on doors and see what, see what abounds. And so I actually went and had coffee with um, Will Schroeder and Will Schroeder runs startups.com. Um, and he'd recently... I think this is just around the time, maybe six months after they'd purchased Virtual, which was a, um, a virtual assistant on demand kind of service that had raised, I think it had raised a bunch of money and then there was some financial issues. And then I think it was a bit of a fire sale. Like I think Will picked it up for a really, like a really healthy kind of um, deal, or at least it was like everyone was taken care of in the transaction. And so I was talking to him about our company and I was like, look, is this something you guys would be interested in? And it just wasn't a fit for where he was at because he was looking to build more of a platform around startups. And so as I had more and more of these conversations with different, you know, people around the people around the Valley and people that were kind of in the know, I was like, Hmm, okay. I feel like if we're going to get a strategic company to, or get a strategic acquisition, it's going to be through one of the hosting companies like a WP engine a GoDaddy, a Bluehost, one of these guys. Because these are companies that host businesses' websites. And why did you think they would be a strategic fit for WP Curve? Like, what was it that they, you thought they would be interested in? 
retrospectively, like I was, I was very like inside out. Cause I was like super proud of what I've built. Right. I'm like, this is a great company and we, you know, we can pour some more gas on marketing and we can continue to scale. And like, I'm very like inside out. I'm like proud of what I've built. Um, going through this process of trying to find a buyer actually forced me to look outside in from that company's perspective as to why they would even care. Why would they look at, you know, a pseudo services business? Like it's kind of like a, a productized service. If you've heard this term, which is mm-hmm. something that can, something that can scale that's people powered that has some of the benefits of, you know, you're actually building an asset. Like there is a, a terminal value to the business as well as recurring revenue. And it ticks a lot of boxes the best way I could explain that type of model. And I heard this in a presentation or a a YouTube video the other day and it was by the Patagonia founder. And he said, our clothes are never in fashion, never in fashion and they're never out of fashion. Hmm. And the same, I feel like the same principles apply to this type of model. So I was looking at the model and I was thinking, okay, if I'm a host, what do I care about? Or if I'm, you know, a corp dev team, what do I care about? And for, for like a business like ours, for a, a bigger company, it would really be a base hit. And what I mean by that is they could purchase us for however many dollars and they could bolt us onto what they had existing and then they could hit the gas and attach us to the existing products and services that they sold and they would be printing money. Like they would absolutely be printing money by, by, looking, at us as, by looking at us as a deal. And that was like a little bit disheartening because, you know, again, the inside out approach is to be like, I'm so proud of my company. Look how awesome it is. But that's a narrow view because if you want to go down the path of selling to a strategic acquirer, it's helpful to understand like what calculations, what things they need to look at on their side to even justify that kind of deal to, you know, the C level or in this case, you know, the board of directors. So when you thought, of web hosting companies and you started to look at it, as you say, in your own words, outside in, what's the economics for, let's say you have a web hosting company with a hundred thousand customers, just to keep the numbers round and simple. What, what is the math? What does the Excel spreadsheet look like that you're providing to a buyer in terms of what the value proposition of buying WP Curve is? Well, they're really going to look at it on an attach rate. So they're going to look at it as far as how many existing customers do we have in this space? And then how many customers do we like reasonably assume that we can sell this product to? And then so what's... So 100,000 customers, I'm assuming a 20% attach rate, that's 20,000 customers. Yeah. That kind of idea. You, yeah. And then you back that into like how profitable can we make this service, um, you know, given it's it's got some limitations around being people powered, like how much efficiency can we drive through this service? And then how quickly can we scale that if we want to turn it on to a huge base? And Alex, how long had, when did you start WP Curve? It was July. I, so it was July, 2013. My co-founder kicked it off two weeks before I joined. I read a blog post that he wrote about the company. Um, at that time it was called WP Live Ninja and he was selling it for $49 a month. And he'd failed, a, failed with a company uh, working on it for the previous year. And this was like a last ditch attempt to, you know, get something to work. And yeah, I commented on a blog post. We went back and forth on a few Skype calls and I said, Hey, look, I'll work with you for three months for free. If we get this thing to, to get going, then we can start to talk about equity and, you know, everything else. Love it. Love it. Over a Skype conversation. Yeah. <laughs> The reason I ask about when you started is because you've 
you're really in this for, at this point, kind of three to four years, if mm-hmm. you will, from startup, right? So mm-hmm. you've got some, some contractors in different developing countries. You've built some process. But in four years, I mean, how much can you really create? I guess where I'm going with this is if I'm one of these big hosting companies and I'm looking at you guys saying, yeah, okay, so these guys have built this in three years. Yeah, we could buy them, but we could also probably just rip off what they're doing here. Like we could probably figure out how to hire some people in the Philippines. We could probably figure out how to give them some scripts. Like, did you have anything proprietary like that made made acquiring you so much more interesting than, than, than sort of setting up and doing what you've done based on kind of following your lead? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And these are all questions I had to answer for myself and for the acquirer. So I had to have good answers to these questions, right? Like, why wouldn't we just do it ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of things that I've realized with bigger companies that really matter. And one of those is speed. So yes, they could absolutely do it themselves. They could mostly figure it out. There would be bumps in the road and maybe it would take them four or five quarters to figure out and get something up and going. Or they can have us as an insurance policy where we've got everything in place, including all of the, you know, the work that we've done around routing and you know, bringing customers on board and retention and all of these different things and either bolt us on or figure out, okay, this is what has worked in the past. Now let's look at what scale looks like. So I think it was in the first meeting that I took with the GoDaddy team. And one of the questions was along the lines of, you know, you've got this business today. Can you grow it by 10 X? Like what would it look like at 10 X? Would it still even exist? And before going into that meeting, I didn't really have a good answer to that question. But of course, on the fly, being the entrepreneur, I had to (laughs) roughly approximate what that would look like. And what that meant was just like a heavier investment in technology and automation. So where we would have manual handoff or where we would have, you know, breakpoints in process, it would just gradually more and more get eaten up by something that was more scalable. And at some level, a bigger company will, you know, purchase based on the fact that you're going to accelerate their roadmap. So we were absolutely accelerating the GoDaddy roadmap by at least a year, if not more, but also the insurance of knowing that they're bringing in the team that's done it before. And also for me individually, um, someone that has experience because I've done startups, but I've also done corporate. So I can figure out how to take like a startup approach and mindset and knock down some doors within corporate to get this thing um, really like humming at scale. And it was a completely different experience going into GoDaddy because I didn't, it wasn't that I was short of resources or anything else, but I actually had to figure out, okay, you know, in the past, what we thought was going to be a, um, a big day was just going to be like a blip. And now we're really going to be throwing like a lot, a lot of customers at this service. What does this look like when we're like really motoring and attaching lots and lots of customers? And when you've got an existing product team that's working on other products, that's a problem set that they can't necessarily focus on. So at some level, it's like, you know, we had to be the best in market and we were mystery shopped. They had um, people on the team go and try everybody in market and see what, you know, see what they were doing, see if they could actually like deal with volume and deal with tricky questions and everything else. So the the underlying service had to be solid. Um, But they were also buying on the promise that we could do what we were doing, but start to do it at actual scale. To be clear, when you say you were mystery shopped, 
Does that mean you were mystery shop by GoDaddy prior to them acquiring as part of their due diligence? Yes, absolutely. And so and the, proof, tell, the proof was really in the pudding. Did they do that? No, not at all. Um, and it was funny because one of the guys, um, Boson, he's based in Africa. He, he's a really special guy. He's one person that absolutely loves being on live chat. Like he's probably the only person I've ever heard, on, heard of in my life that loves being on live chat. And both times GoDaddy came through, they got him on live chat. And so he was just, he did a wonderful job. They got everything taken care of that they needed to get taken care of. They were throwing some like pretty tricky stuff at us. And we had no idea because we've got so much volume coming through. It's just another customer. Um, but that, that to me was like probably one of the, the more important tests. Like, can we actually deliver on the promise that we're making as far as the service that we provide? And that was, that was through years and years of trial and tribulation and figuring out what worked and what didn't. Okay. So let me, let me try to summarize where we are in the story so far. So, um, you write the index card and you've got a, a sense of, of how much money you need to make, to give yourself in your own words, some breathing room. You have these conversations with the broker. They say two to three times SDE. You go, that's not going to do it. You have some conversations with guys like Will and they say, really the, the strategic value here is selling to one of the web hosting companies because they're going to attach your offering to their tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of customers. Am I getting the story generally right so far? Yeah. Okay. So it, at that point, um, you know, you've heard SaaS multiples, software as a service multiples of sort of six, seven, eight times revenue. You've got the two to three times SDE number rattling around in your mind thinking, I want to do better than that. Where are you at at this point when you're starting to have the conversations with these web hosting companies? What do you, what's your sense of what it's worth? E either, you know, again, multiple of EBITDA or, uh, you know, top line revenue. We haven't actually revealed what your revenue was. So you could share your ballpark. Like, are you thinking it's kind of one to two, two to three times revenue? What, what are your thoughts? I'm thinking it's anywhere between like 0.25 and 4X revenue. That's the ballpark that I'm playing within. Wow, that's and, a big range. Okay, yeah. well, tell me about that. Well, and I only, like, I only come to this conclusion after seeing, you know, the sales, like both the buy and the sell side of some of these deals after the fact, which is that from time to time, you'll see, you know, companies go through an acquisition process and, they'll pop up and they'll say, Hey, we've been acquired, right? Like there's an acquisition that happens and it wasn't actually like an inbound deal. Like ours was an inbound deal where GoDaddy actually reached out to us. So it was by no magical thing that I did, but the timing just so lined up that GoDaddy reached out to us and was interested. But for a lot of other companies that have been kind of going, like doing their thing for a couple of years, something will happen internally the founders will put out a prospectus to the corporate development teams of these, you know, these bigger companies and say, Hey, you know, we're, we're basically up for sale. And if this is a, an asset that you'd be interested in acquiring, let's, let's talk. And that happens a lot more than I thought. I didn't realize that was such a, a common occurrence. And that really drives your value down because if you're going out to the market and saying, Hey, we're for sale, then the market's going to give you what the market will bear, which is usually as, as little as you will take. Um, when you get an inbound inquiry and the purchaser is actually interested in what you're doing and there's a confluence of events that lead up to this, like with us, which was GoDaddy had a strategic goal that they wanted to accomplish. They were, you know, shopping around and looking for the options out in market. Um, there were some connections, like my co-founder knew one of the guys over at GoDaddy 
I knew a couple of guys over at GoDaddy, so we had a good reputation. Um, these things kind of came together and the, the inquiry came inbound to us. And so like, that's not, there's not necessarily to me, like a really defined absolute process you can take with that apart from like being really good at what you do, building the right relationships with stakeholders at different target businesses that you want to eventually be acquired by. Um, but the dry, it definitely changes the dynamic of the valuation because if you're going outbound trying to sell to these companies, like good luck getting, getting a good multiple is all I will say. So you're thinking it's anywhere between 0.25 times revenue all the way up to four. Yeah. Okay. So that's a big range. So help me square something in my own mind because earlier we were talking about the conversations you were having with guys like Will, uh, you had the index card, you wanted to sell so that you were sort of on your front foot when it came to selling. That was, that was part, you know, part of the plan in 2016. Um, did, did, did word get, get round sort of, did you come to learn that word sort of got round to GoDaddy that you'd be open to having a conversation? Is that how they sort of approached you or, or, or was it completely out of the blue? Do, do, you, do you have any sense of that? It's possible. It's, it's absolutely possible, but I'm not sure. And yeah, I, I don't, I don't really think so. Um, and maybe that's the grand mystery of this acquisition, but I personally, I did not like, I did not make it happen where I did not brute force it and figure out a way to, you know, get in front of the, um, get in front of someone and say, this is what we've got. And I'm going to blow you away with this this presentation. But, it, like I, but the timing does seem kind of weird, right? Like you write the, the index card and then you happen to get a call kind of out of the blue in the same year. You've only been in business three years. GoDaddy's like one of, you know, a bunch of web hosting companies. Interesting. Seems- interestingly enough, probably like six months before that, I had a call from one of the senior guys at GoDaddy who was talking about what they were building out in WordPress. So as an individual, I was kind of on his radar. Like he was looking for, I think he was looking for help with something WordPress related. And I was like, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I'm, you know, working on this and we're getting some traction and everything else. Um, and it was funny because, you know, another 12 months I'm sitting in a, in a meeting room with him and some of the other team members talking about like what either a partnership or an acquisition could potentially look like. So you know, whether I was partly on the radar, what we were building was partly on the radar. It is hard to really know um, mm. because a company like GoDaddy, if they see, you know, if they see talent, they'll pay a premium for that. If it's, you know, niche enough or specialist enough. And you see this happen in the Valley quite a lot where there'll be someone with a, you know, a very specific skill set, and they'll be looking to just bring that person in and they'll pay a premium to do that. So that can also be, a, you know, a factor and part of, part of getting the deal done for, um, with GoDaddy was that, you know, I was going to come with the business. So that, that was built into. I want to talk to you about that as well. So, so how does it go from this conversation, you know, very brief with someone at GoDaddy to a partnership slash acquisition conversation? Like, did they reach out to you over email? Did they meet you at a bar? Like, how did it, actually start to accelerate into an acquisition conversation? Yeah, it was an email. I think the email came through around May, 2016, and I was pretty burnt out by this stage. So the email went to my co-founder. I just kind of fobbed it off because I'd had, 
I'd had one other experience with one other big internet company that had like, because we were so early and so new, and this happens quite a bit too, is they were like, oh, cool. We're like interested in like partnering or buying you guys. Right. And we definitely overstepped and probably shared more than we should have. And there was probably no real intention on their side to go through with a purchase or maybe there was, I'm not sure. They were fishing and that's, that's okay. Like you learn that lesson once and then you never do it again. Um, and so I had kind of had a bad taste in my mouth from that and I was pretty burnt out and I was like, you know, kicking on with some other projects and things and trying to push the sale as much as I could, but it kind of hit a roadblock. Email came through, um, co-founder went back and forth and basically said like, this looks like there's some interest here. Uh, went into, went into, where was it? Sunnyvale where the headquarters are. And had and did they position it as a potential acquisition or did they use the couch, the coach it as a, as a sort of partnership? What, what verbiage did they use? I think it's partnership to start. Um, mm. Given like, given the, I would say artillery is probably the wrong word, but given the folks that were in the meeting, I felt like there was going to be, there's a little bit more weight behind it than a partnership. Cause if you heard Who was there, uh, senior people in products, senior people in, um, operations and support, corporate development. So I'm like intuiting this thing and going, well, if it's a partnership, typically you like engage with a partner manager or someone in business development. And that's the process. Cause my wife was working with Wix, which is another internet company and she was in partnership. So I kind of knew how that process typically went, even with big companies, right? Like it's not usually like, you're not really bringing in the big guns. Mm-hmm. And so I had a feeling that there was some kind of interest and that they bring us in and they just ask us a bunch of questions about operations, you know, uh, projections, what our plans are. Had you executed an NDA? Um, At that point, let me think. Yes. 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 So anything that was another sign that they were serious. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's good hygiene as well because I was quite resistant given that I'd handed over a lot of Intel to another company in the past and wanted some like, you know, wanted some guardrails in place. Like that was super important to me. Um, and so, yeah, we started, we definitely started that off with a, I would say like a healthy, a healthy agreement and a healthy kind of uh, healthy, healthy boundaries in place to make sure we could have a, like a real conversation. This is a fascinating topic because so many of our listeners want to know, like, how much information should I divulge if I get approached by an acquirer? They're going to have a thousand questions for me. What do I share? What do I keep like close to my vest? How did you decide to approach that meeting? Even with an NDA in place, you're, you're obviously exposing yourself to some extent. What, what did you share and where did you cut them off saying, I'm not prepared to you know, talk about that? Yeah, I think it was... Like we were very transparent. So we would do the whole like monthly report, talk about our revenue. And I think we'd done that up until like 12 months prior to the sale. So we had, you know, growth and traffic and all of that kind of stuff. But what I was like, the the way that I was looking at it was, you know, at our scale, it wasn't like, it wasn't going to be necessarily like a, a really like really a financial purchase, like the motivation wasn't going to be financial as such. Cause like GoDaddy is a, I think at that time was like a three or $4 billion company um, driven by primarily 
um, private equity people, very like very good operators. So looking at our like looking at our level of revenue wasn't going to be the make or break. What they were looking for was scale because they like they are value buyers. They'll see something and figure out how they can like get the most out of it. It's what good private equity firms do. Um, and so I was like walking into that kind of knowing that. And even though those questions, typically the ones that people get can get like uncomfortable around or tripped up on, if you, again, going from outside in, like trying to understand where the bias coming from for me was very important because I could say, oh, you know, our churn rate is X or our annual revenue is Y. And that's, that's cool. Like that's good for them to know, but what they're trying to actually understand is that's what's this going to look like at 10 times the scale or beyond? Like, how does this business grow? And like, are you the team and are you the people to make that happen? That's really the questions that they're answering. And so I didn't put a whole lot of stock or weight into that because frankly, like they probably didn't really care that much to be honest, um, which took some pressure off. So I could be very open and very candid and say, these are the things that are working. These are the things that aren't. Um, and here's what we would do given more resources, given more marketing, given more sales opportunities and so forth. Was this an aqua hire? In my, like, in my kind of experience, an aqua hire is where a team goes over to a business um, and then there's like some kind of signing bonus and there's no value assigned to the business. So there's like, we'll, we'll announce this as an acquisition and then you guys all get taken care of. Um, that's not what this was, which was nice because I've had some friends go through that process and there's a difference between having an acquisition, getting a lump sum of cash, being able to do something with that or having an acquisition that's announced goes out to the public. Everyone's really celebrating. And then the founder doesn't feel so great because it wasn't really, it wasn't really like a financial milestone for them. And so there's a, there's a big difference between the two and yeah, luckily or thankfully for me, it wasn't. The reason I, I raise it is is because your your sort of operating stats on revenue and profitability were less interesting than, you know, does this model scale? Is it foundation that we can put ten times the weight on and it won't collapse? Those were the kinds of questions they wanted to have answered. Mm -hmm. it sounds like fantastic. And so, at what point did they actually put a number in front of you? Let me think. I started talking in June. I think it was yeah, it was about August early August. So it was probably two months of back and forward. And then August, we, uh, we got into going back and forth on term sheet and so forth. And who made the first move? I mean, did they ask you verbally in those meetings, sort of, what do you want for the business, Alex? Or did, did, did they kind of come out of the blue with a number? Yeah, they, they ask. Um, and when you're dealing with people that have been in corporate development for, you know, 15 or 20 years, um, they're like to them, they're running a process. Like it's a very, very well oiled and very defined process. And so I was kind of at, at one point it's, it felt like a little bit of David, David and Goliath. Cause I'm like, yeah, okay, that. I've got to like figure out how not to, you know, mess this up. I've got to, you know, not shortchange myself. I've got to make sure the whole team gets taken care of. I want to make sure that everyone's made whole from the transaction. And so I, this is where I kind of learned about the emotional side of the acquisition, which is about like managing your individual state. Um, and the single thing that kind of got me through the process, I think was being like really committed to trying to do everything that I could to make sure that the deal got done at the terms that made both my co-founder and I happy. Um, 
but also balancing that out with being okay if it didn't come off. So that was a weird, a weird position to be kind of put in because I had to show up 110% every meeting, every call, every kind of, you know, data request or whatever else and know that it could completely fall apart at any point in time. And a lot of these, a lot, a lot of these kind of deals do. Um, and they take up a lot of headspace and energy and effort from founders. And again, personally, I've seen this, I've seen this working with founders as well, where people get starry eyed or they get dollar signs in their eyes. There's someone that's knocking on their door. You get into diligence and for whatever reason, there might be a change in strategy or something else pops up. And so, yeah, to anyone that is going to go through the process, and this is my kind of perspective on it is, you know, be really committed to doing the work and working through the process. But um, at a certain point, you, you know, you kind of, it's not a dice roll, but it is, you put, you put in your best effort. And then if it doesn't come off and you've put in your best effort, you kind of have to let it go. So you were, you were saying that that was difficult. You learned that lesson, not like through doing right. The riding that emotional wave of trying not to get too uh, wired up. How did you respond when they asked, what do you want for the company? Um, I think I was just really, I was just kind of really, um, I don't know. I bounced around a little bit and I'm like, we've got a multiple in mind. Um, basically we'll see, we'll see what you've got on the table and then just shut up. So like there's, I think there's a propensity to want to justify and talk about what you want and all of these different things, but it's, you know, we have a number in mind. Let's see what you've got. That's it. And then see what goes on from there. Because with any, with any deal that I've ever seen, there's a dance that happens, which is, you know, this is what we'll, you know, we'll offer you this. Okay. That's way too low. We're going to come in way too high and it's going to go back and forward anyway. So it acts like that to me, that first number isn't necessarily that important. What was your reaction to the number they put in front of you? It made it real for sure. Like it made it like, okay, this, like this, there's a good chance this is going to get done. Um, but then it was a matter of figuring out, you know, I think going into it, what I knew is I had, I had a number that I would be happy with. And once I got to that number, then I would be negotiating other terms. So that was the other thing that was like helpful. And again, when you can get into things like earnouts and clawbacks and performance bonuses and a bunch of different cliffs invested, like all these different things that can convolute an offer, um, knowing what you want to walk away with like me knowing what I wanted to walk away with was really helpful and cleared things up. So when we hit that, I was like, great, let's go. Did the initial offer reach uh, your number for what you needed to make you happy? No. How did you respond? I start, I put on my dancing shoes and started to <laughs> dance <laughs> and I kept a straight face while I was doing it. Cause there's a, I think again, the emotional component of this is, you know, like, oh, like my, like when your expectations aren't met, it's easy to, you know, maybe get upset or think that, think that there's something missing or maybe you haven't like explained the value of what you do well enough or whatever else. Um, but at the same time, you've got to maintain a, I don't know, a demeanor, which is you're selling a business. It's a transaction. It's a financial transaction. So it's, I have something to sell, you know, when you meet that price, then we're going to be good. Um, until you meet that price, then we're not, 
going to sell. Like there's no, like our other options are better than selling. And so being firm in that, I think is, I think was super helpful. Like it was very helpful to do that. Had, had you and your partner, Dan, arrived at the same number or did you feel that, did you have different numbers in mind? Yeah, we had the same, we had the same number for sure. And so you mentioned you danced. When you say you danced, were you physically in front of the folks at GoDaddy at this time or were you looking at an email and, and kind of trying to conjure up your response? Yeah, it was emails and calls and mm-hmm. um, yeah, we'd, I think we'd mostly taken it online by this stage because there was going to be a lot of back and forward. So how did you respond? Um, I couldn't remember the exact response as far as like what I said next, but it was along the lines of we're going to need more, like we're going to need more to make this happen. What was their reaction to that? I think this is where the, the dance kicks off, which is there's something to do with like pacing where they're probably like, they're likely working to a timeline on their side to close a deal. Um, and they've got certain areas where they can go slow and certain areas where they can go fast. Um, and I think this was an area where I, I was willing to wait it out because I knew that this was going to be like, and it, like this is one of the most important things to get right. So like when you're in diligence and you're trying to like find any warts that are on the business or any skeletons that are in the closet, then, you know, you can go really slow and be really like, sorry, you can go slow or fast depending on like where, like which part of the business that you're looking at. But for me, I was not going to rush this part of the process. And so I was happy to wait as long as it took for them to get back to me. That is a, <laughs> that is a man with enormous discipline. You know, do you mind sharing, uh, when we had the video cameras on, you, there's, there's a, there's something behind you in a glass case. Do you mind sharing what that is? And- yeah, that was a, that was a present from my wife, which is a, um, basketball that's signed by John Wooden. And he's like the master of discipline. And the thing, the thing about this, right. Is that on the inside, I was doing backflips and cartwheels, probably like having panic attacks and melting down and going up, up and down through the roller coaster that is the, the deal process. But when I was in front of the people that I needed to be in front of, or when I needed to communicate, I had to be very measured and very deliberate because these guys are good at what they do. They're good at buying companies. They can find a really good value opportunity. And with that, you know, I've, I value the work that I've done. I value the work that the team had put in and the, the product that we'd built. And I wanted to make sure that that was recognized because the other side of this is if I sold for something that I wasn't happy with, I would go into that. I would go start working at GoDaddy and be a bit upset. I'd be like, I didn't, I don't feel really good about this deal because I feel like I didn't get what I needed. And so I was trying to keep that in mind as I was going through the process which is not easy because with something like this, you know, a huge financial transaction, life-changing amount of money, um, emotions are running high. There's a lot of pressure. Business still needs to run. Team members are wondering why, you know, people are quiet or what's going on. So there's like many, many moving parts and super stressful, but maintaining that demeanor of being calm and collected, um, it helps. How much were they off by? Oh, I couldn't, off the top of my head, I couldn't remember the exact, the exact details of that. Do you think, I mean, I'm trying to get a sense that they need to double their offer, triple their offer. Was it like 
short by 10%? Like, like in terms of, is this a huge gap that we're trying to fill here or kind of a nip and a tuck and we'll get there? Yeah, I think it was ballpark. Um, and I think it was, you know, I think it was something that like we could get to. Uh, what, like what we were looking for wasn't insane and what they were offering wasn't like, like I'll see some of these early offers and for companies come through and sometimes they're like low enough, like they're low enough that they're almost offensive and GoDaddy didn't pull that. Like GoDaddy was very respectful and they're like, you know, we've got our model. This is like, this is comps. This is what this could look like. And I'm like, okay, that's great. We need to work on that to get to somewhere where we're both comfortable. And that's just going back and forward and back and forward until you land on it. But yeah, at this point in time, because I've been in it for a couple of months, I think, you know, the pressure, the pressure starts to build a little bit because there's a sense that you need to, I want to say like you need to get some closure or need to move things forward. And this is also an entrepreneurial trait too, right? Like I feel good when I feel like there's progress or momentum, Yeah, but understanding the dynamic that, you know, you're working with a company that's on different timelines to you, has more resources than you, um, maybe doesn't have as big a sense of urgency that you do. Um, that, that context is helpful because if I was expecting everyone to go at my pace, I would be very upset within, you know, a couple of weeks. Cause I'm like focusing wholly and solely on this deal. Um, but you know, just prior to our deal closing another deal closed, which was the acquisition of host Europe group, which was an enormous deal. So all of the corporate development people are hands down, you know, our heads down on that thing. And we've got our, our deal coming through on the side. And, you know, if I took that personally and I'd be like, okay, well, like why are things not moving at the pace I expect them to or whatever else, then I could, you know, get, it'd be very easy to let emotions, um, emotions kind of drive, drive my positioning or drive what I was doing. But you're a master of discipline, apparently. Fantastic. On the outside, on the outside, <laughs> on the inside, I'm doing loops. Yeah. So talk like, so your, your response is, Hey guys, you know, thanks for the offer, but we're gonna have to do better to get it to where we need to be for everybody to be happy. How much time is there between that communication and, and them improving their offer to a point where you were willing to accept? I think the turn, the turn periods are pretty short and that was good for me because I was like, okay, if they're serious, they'll come back relatively quickly. Cause they know that we're, you know, working to some kind of, you know, working to some kind of closure on this. And I think again, like looking at this retrospectively, it's easy to, it's easy. Like I, I probably like would refresh my inbox, like every hour to make sure I hadn't missed an email, <laughs> but then I'd get the email and I'd make sure that I wouldn't reply to it immediately because I didn't want to seem like that, you know, overbearing, super excited guy. Awesome. Yeah, and yeah, the, like, yeah. you can really like, there's little signals that you can send in stuff like this, which, you know, the corporate development team roughly knows where you are. Like they roughly know what you're looking for. And they, how, kind of how have, would they know that? Because this is what they do, right? They work with entrepreneurs that have poured their, heart and soul into a business and then they're offering them, you know, an exit and some terms that might be amenable to what they're looking for. And you can easily get starry eyed. You can really, really easily, you know, get to the term sheet phase, have some dollar signs in your eyes, start looking at that, you know, Tesla that you want to buy or that house that you want to buy or whatever else. And you just get carried away with it. 
And there's something to that, right? Which is it takes you like take your eye off the prize, which is actually like working through the process, getting the deal done, getting it done in a way that like takes care of everyone. And this is where like shortcuts and things can, can arise because you get so exhausted by all of the emotion that's flying around that you start to make bad decisions. So what would, what would you counsel an entrepreneur to think about at this stage of the game? Like you mentioned the corporate development, people kind of roughly know where you're at. They can, they know what strings to pull, like what sorts of kind of games would, would, would a corporate development person play or tactics or messages that you'd counsel entrepreneurs to be thoughtful about? Yeah. And again, respectfully, like the, the team that I worked with in Corp Dev from GoDaddy, like very good at what they do. Um, so I have the utmost respect for them because they were very respectful through the process and super helpful. As far as the entrepreneur side, entrepreneur side of things, I think the first thing is actually like knowing the number that you want, like being very, very clear on what that number is. What do I want to walk away with after tax? And get that in the upfront consideration, right? Like don't be dancing around with clawbacks and earnouts and all sorts of different wonky um, structures that may or may not lead to you getting what you need. Just be clear on what you want. And then also ground that in reality. So, you know, you'll talk to some founders and I've talked to a couple of founders recently who will throw out these insane multiples for a company that is nowhere near that. And it's not my job to tell them that that's right or wrong, but I'll say, you know, in my experience, I think you might be a little bit off the mark as far as comps go. So like manage your expectations, but then also I think making sure that you are clear that the people that you're working with, like this is their job, like they're professionals at what they do. And it's good to be respectful of that, but also remember that they're not your friends either. Right. So this is a business transaction. And when there's emotion flying, around you it's like natural to kind of overstep overshare overreach um over signal but it really is a bit of a game of poker and so if you can keep your game face mostly together then that will serve you in the long run and it also builds a nice i think it, it like sets the relationship sets the tone for the relationship in a nice way which is like i have a company i'm proud of this company i am going to get what i need to make this work. And I want to make sure that the company is successful post the acquisition. And when you approach it, when, when I approached it in that way, it served me really well. So those are a couple of things I think to consider. And then, you know, the other things that I mentioned were timelines, right? So a startup's timeline or an entrepreneur's timeline is like, what can I do by the end of this week? Um, a corporate's timeline is like the end of the quarter or the end of the year. And so if you're aware of that, you'll save yourself a lot of headaches by feeling things are moving more slowly than, you know, you expect them to. But in your case, the turns on your communication with the corporate development people were, were quite quick, like weeks, like how, you, you know, you receive an, or you send them an email, like how quickly are they coming back to you? Yeah. Relatively speaking, it was quick, but that's quick in corporate terms, not quick. So in five days, terms. 10 days, 20 yeah, days. Yeah. Five to 10 days. Like, they had resources assigned to work this thing. But again, I tempered my expectations, right? I didn't think this thing was going to get done in, I don't know, a week or two weeks. I knew that there was going to be lots of things that had to happen under the hood to make sure this landed. Lots of HR 
elements to get right, like just different things that needed to move, different puzzle pieces that needed to be put together to make sure that it would work. What was um, the thorniest issue? Let me think. I think like maybe the, the, biggest, the biggest concern was scale. Like how does this scale? Because if you look at, like if you look at any productized service, and this is again from having looked at a lot of these now, there's this thing that happens with the productized service and it happens in a lot of service businesses or brick and mortar businesses is when you scale revenue, then your people and your like hard costs scale linearly with revenue. So you've got this built-in drag on a business where it gets like, you know, less and less appealing, the bigger and bigger you get. So this is the reason that software companies get acquired and can scale if they're, if the acquisition is well managed, scale really quickly because you're basically like buying, I don't know, more hardware to support it or getting more engineers to work on it, but you can get nonlinear scale. Um, with something like a productized service, it's like, okay, we know what you know, kind of headcount you've got now, but if we multiply, or if we grow revenue by 10x, does that mean headcount's going to increase by 10x? Like, are we going to have a, you know, we've got, I think GoDaddy at the time had 4,000 employees or something. And I can't go in there and say, yeah, like this is going to be, you know, a two or a 300 person team operating at scale. And so that was work that I had to do to figure out how do we, how do we engineer this business in a way where like we can get as much volume through the front door as possible without having to have, you know, dozens and dozens of people being hired every other month to keep up with demand. And at what, that's helpful. At what point did you know that they were going to meet your expectations for, uh, I can't remember what, what you called it, but kind of the number you needed to make you and Dan happy. What, what were the circumstances around finding out that, that you were indeed going to get that number? Um, let me think. I think, you know what? I think it was just like doing like dancing for long enough, right? Going back and forward on, this is what we're looking for. No, like, yeah, no, I can't remember exactly how many turns it was, but it was just a matter of kind of bouncing around on that. And did you ever reveal your number to the other side? Um, once they hit it, we did. <laughs> like, sure. But before they hit it, did you ever sort of, did you ever say, you know, you guys, I mean, I'm putting numbers up. You guys are at one X revenue. You know, we've got to be at least at three X revenue to do this deal. Like, did you get, did you sort of share your number at, at any point? Yeah, we were like, we were talking in abstract, like multiples based on annual recurring, that kind of thing, but not, yeah. So the, like the answer to that question is yes, but only as we got closer to where we needed to be. So it wasn't like, you know, you landed here and then we have to be here to make it happen. It's like, you landed here. Let's see what else is available. Let's keep seeing what else is available. Okay. We're close. So it was like cold, warm, warmer, hot. Okay. This is what we need to do to get it done. Got it. And are you shopping this deal to other web hosting companies at the same time? No. Intentionally? Um, I think I couldn't. Yeah, I don't think I could. So at a, a certain see. point, like there's exclusivity and there's like lots of other kind of, kind of hoops to jump through and that kind of thing. And I didn't, I did not want to have any, like any risk that I could manage on my side brought into the deal. So I didn't mm -hmm. want to like, I didn't want to torpedo the deal on myself by, you know, basically like getting too excited and going out and trying to shop the thing when I was, I was getting good signals from the prospective buyer. 
When was the share purchase agreement consummated? Did you go to a lawyer's office to sign the documents or where, where did you actually go? Um, I think it was just like online. And were you and Dan together at the time? He was in Australia. I was in, I was in Arizona and it was the funniest celebration because when you sell something like that, like when something like that happens, it feels like streamers are going to pop out of the roof. <laughs> you know, music's <laughs> going to start playing. Um, I don't know. There's going to be a marching band come through the front door, <laughs> but none of those things happened. And I was kind of like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Get back to business. I suppose. Have you and Dan ever physically met? We met, I think we met about a year after we started working together. Okay. So we met a couple of times, um, but it was primarily a remote business. Yeah. Did you buy yourself any sort of trophy or reward for, for getting the deal done? I went out and I got, oh, maybe that was beforehand. I did get, I don't know if you saw the other things that were in my office, but I've got some WP curve license plates that sent me back. I think it was 50 bucks. They're pretty cheap in Arizona to get custom plates. Um, it took me a little while to get myself something nice. So I, I didn't really have any, too, any big splurges. And then I, probably like six months ago, I went out and got a Tesla Model 3. Um, Fantastic. And, and those cars are amazing. And I'm not a car guy. I drove a Kia did, Optima before that, so I didn't really care. Did you go do a motor performance the whole nine yards? <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. That's awesome. <laughs> Great to hear. I like a good trophy now and again. Can't right. do all this work and all this dancing for nothing. Well, I tell people this too. It's like go and celebrate and entrepreneurs are like, yeah, yeah. I just got so much work to do. And it's like, okay, what are you working for again? Like, right. Working for the sake of work. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what are you doing now? What, what, uh, what's keeping you busy these days? So when I, was, when I was at GoDaddy, I had a couple people that reached out to me because they'd seen what I'd gone through and they were like, oh, we need help with our company. Like either they were scaling their company or they wanted to sell their company. And I fell into business coaching. I was like a reluctant business coach. And so I think that actually the, first, like, no, the second client that I worked with was the guy that introduced us, which is Jake Jorgovan. So shout out to Jake. Yeah. Yeah, you can listen to his episode uh, off the top of my head. We'll put it in the show notes, but uh, great interview. He's a, he's a really, really thoughtful, heart-centered guy. Got a lot of respect for him. We work together and then he's like nudging me. He's like, dude, you got to do more of this. And I'm like, again, reluctant. He's like, get out there and market yourself. Talk about some of the things that you've learned. It'll be helpful to people. I'm like, okay, Jake. And so, yeah, for the last, what's it been? It's been about a year now that I've been helping entrepreneurs that are running internet companies scale and sell and um, have helped a couple of companies sell and been able to like share some of my experiences to help them get through it a little bit more smoothly and not get, I think, overwhelmed with all of the different moving parts of the deal process um, because it is so stressful. Super, it super is indeed. Stressful. Where would people, uh, if they want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Are you, are you a LinkedIn guy or a Twitter guy? What's the... Yeah. Um, what would you they, point people to? Yeah, they can just jump on LinkedIn. Um, if you look me up, I'm Alex McClafferty, or you can go to my website at productize.co. So that's P-R-O-D-U-C-T-I-Z-E dot C-O. Awesome. And McClafferty is MC capital C-L-A-F-F-E-R-T-Y, if I have my notes correct. Is that right? That's right. 
Alex, thanks so much for joining us. It was great to be, uh, to be hearing your story and it was great to visit with you. And thanks for the hard hitting questions. I really appreciate it. <laughs> there you go. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.